Okay, welcome back to The Lars Resort, which remains a podcast with me, Lars Hewton, brought to you still by Betson. I am... I'm on holiday. The resort is on the road. Um, I mean, I'm in Georgia, the, the country, not the state, and what a place. I've, I've got a lot of thoughts and feelings about the great country of Georgia at the moment, uh, but I feel like it should be a different episode for now. I've prepared something for this in, in, in a, what can only be described as a rare moment of organization and planning for this pod. I prepared something for my week away. I sat down and spoke with Miles Coleman, who is the producer of the wildly successful Netflix documentary FIFA Uncovered. It was very successful and it was also very good. Uh, I enjoyed it tremendously. It's really like a... Well, we'll discuss it uh, in a minute, but it's it's both a really good sort of description of sort of how... If you leave people unsupervised and give them a lot of money, they they go slightly crazy and do do things they shouldn't do, and and it's also a good sort of history of of how we got to where we are with with FIFA. So certainly, if you're one of the many many people who are frustrated by the decisions this organization comes out with and some of the characters, it seems to elevate. The documentary is a great great place to start in terms of understanding why it works that way and how we got here, and it is. That makes it sound a bit dry, but it's also really funny. It's a lot funnier than you'd think. Mr. Coleman and his guys did a great, great job. So I was very excited to talk to him about it. It's a good place, good time to revisit it, I think, because it came up before uh, the Qatar World Cup. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I became sort of content uh, saturated. Does that even work? There was just too much good stuff being published, and there was quite a lot of it I ended up not being able to watch in time. So if you did miss... The uh, FIFA Uncovered documentary on Netflix when it came out last year. Do check it out now. It's still good. It's uh, it's absolutely worth spending some uh, some time on. So I'm gonna. Remember, I used to do, I used to make clapping sounds when we had interviewees. That that kind of works as a transition. But I've lost my sound box. The sound box is gone, so I can't do it. But I'm gonna try to insert some clapping noises here to to introduce Miles, who was very generous with his time. So uh, let's see. Can we have can we have some clapping sounds? Right, Miles uh, Coleman, thank you so much for taking time to speak to me. Just to start on a note of flattery, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I uh, I was a little bit, because I, I dipped my toe in this world when I was younger. I did a few sort of FIFA things. And because I had some knowledge, I've often been very frustrated by the way mainstream media cover it, because they often get so many things wrong. Uh, but, but, but you guys did such an amazing job. And that makes me want to ask you a number of questions. The first of which is, when you came into this, how much did you feel like you had to learn about FIFA? Because like, I remember like, you have, almost have to take a degree in FIFA to even begin to cover these things. I mean, first off, uh, thank you for, for having me on. Um, I can put the flattery right back at you and say I've um, listened, read for a long time. So this is a real joy to do. And I'm, I'm really, really glad to be kind of revisiting um, FIFA Uncovered um, a few months on because, like you say, I think it is... Uh, it is still really relevant. The the news headlines, the front and back pages are being dominated by the actions of a football association um, head at the moment in Rubiales. So it hasn't gone away. And just yesterday, I don't know if you saw this, actually, there was this an astonishing story that um, purported to show just how much the Qataris allegedly paid individual FIFA committee members mm-hmm. yesterday, you know, saying that we've got the bank transfers 
came out in a relatively obscure journal. That is to say, um, this is a story that hasn't gone away. It didn't end when uh, Messi lifted the trophy um, in his bisht in December. So um, when you, to, to answer your question, because that wasn't your question at all, it was just a, a, no, a rabbit warren, to answer your question. Almost a better place to begin than my question. You're sort of doing my job better than I am currently. <laughs> well, I, I would say that. No, to answer, to answer your question, it actually genuinely was like a degree in that a degree is about three years long with a lot of downtime. Um, our process making FIFA Uncovered was about three, three and a half years um, with some bumps in the way due to the pandemic so it it genuinely was and when I came into it initially I think I was like a lot of football fans in that I had a general feeling of antipathy towards FIFA right if I if you ask me about what I thought of FIFA I was like oh they, they seem to not do a ton good for the game and I believe there's been some kind of you know ethical moral question marks around them but really when i thought of fifa i thought about bad refereeing decisions yeah. i thought you know I, I i was i was pretty much a typical fan i didn't really understand too much the politics i knew who set blatter was mm. i knew that he was basically not well liked in football but i didn't have any specifics and i think the other thing that is important to kind of when i look back on that journey is i was a kind of football well I, I was a kind of football fan who when i thought fifa i thought of the video game i mm. played every single day which trust me when you google things around fifa when you're trying to research makes it really hard cuz <laughs> 99% of fifa content is about the video game um but yeah I, I like i was the kind of football fan where what i cared about on a day-to-day basis was is my team doing well are we winning matches are we signing players I wasn't really too fussed about the politics of football because basically I took the position a lot of football fans take was, well, I get enough politics and politicians on the front pages of the news. Why should I open up this beautiful sacred space of football to politics? And now three and a half years on, I've I've learned what I hope people learn watching the documentary, which is the football politics really matter. They matter in how the beautiful game is played and they matter in how it's looked after um, but also they are starting to have wider ramifications that make FIFA Uncovered and, and FIFA to be a relevant topic, whether you're a football fan or not. Yeah, and I think one of the things a lot of a lot of mainstream journalists, a lot of people who aren't familiar with the, the, the strange world of FIFA struggle with when they first come to it is that in these sort of corruption stories, the poor management stories, you tend to look at certain individuals and think these are the bad guys and you sort of think anyone who's trying to bring them down are necessarily then the good guys. And I think in the world of FIFA, it's so much more complicated in terms of how the organization works, what people's motivations are and how you can even begin to try to fix it. It's super complicated and you cannot really even begin to understand that unless you have half a history degree about the history of the organization. And I think this is where the documentary shines is that, you know, the first couple of episodes I think should be taught in schools. It's such an amazing uh, history lesson of how we got to where we got to. I mean, I'd love to have gone to the school that teaches uh, <laughs> football history as part of the curriculum. But yeah, look, when I, I mean, I've when we started making this and I was reading books for like three, four months, just reading books nonstop. And in the pandemic, I was sat on my couch reading books. I would read one FIFA book. So a book about the history of FIFA or about individuals within FIFA. You know, I'd be reading people like David Kahn and Ken Bensinger who appear in the films. But then for every book I read about FIFA, I would read a book about um, like political theory. Mm. The reason I was reading political theory books 
aside from being incredibly fun at parties, is because we wanted this series to actually be about how do people, when faced with a blank check, you know, all the optimism in the world, how do people behave? Yeah. And our theory was the story of FIFA shouldn't, the takeaway shouldn't be that, oh, football is bad and football is a corrupt and all, and only it's a set bladder problem. This is a story about systems. What happens when people are given a lot of money and not a lot of oversight? How do people behave? And I sort of viewed the 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 story of FIFA as like a petri dish for corruption, mm. a perfect laboratory, you know, away from, um, you know, away from the vagaries and intricacies of political systems in different countries. What happens when you take this non-national organization, the supranational organization, and give people carte blanche to run it how they will so i i really I, I really like what you say because like that for me is the thing that i'm really proud of and i've had friends come up to me who've had to watch it because you know i worked on it so i'm like <laughs> you have to watch this yeah, yeah. and they've and the, the thing i love hearing from them is i don't particularly like football but i found this a riveting story because i like politics and i like history and then you, know, you know this is a story about it's just a story about humans and the human condition and how kind of we're all a bit shit yeah. sometimes yeah. <laughs> it really is and um i mean how do you even begin to try to tell that story aside from read a lot of paper a lot of a lot of books we read a lot of books um i think so the first year is basically understanding all of the facts of what happens the first year is what what people need to know about the fifa story is like there's 210 or something member associations each one of them has their own kind of incredible, sordid, crazy history. So if, you know, you have a listener in Brazil, they will immediately think of the power politics that happened in the Brazilian FA and so-and-so is taking out so-and-so and Bob has allied with Kevin to get rid of Carl and so on. Now, you need to multiply that 210 times. <laughs> so that's how many times this is happening around the world. Plus, you have the confederations, that's UEFA, CAF, CONCACAF, etc., at those levels, there are the shenanigans happening. And then at the top of the FIFA pyramid, there's, it's all happening at, at FIFA House in Zurich as well. So a huge part of the job was just distilling and understanding all of the stories that have happened. But we always wanted the documentary to be something that anyone could watch. Mm. So not just for football fans, not just for FIFA heads. We hope that people like yourself and, and journalists and people who followed the stories for years could watch it and learn something new. Mm. But we also wanted it to be something that the casual football fan, before turning on the TV to watch Qatar 22, could watch as a primer and basically from a standing start. I think one of the routes into that and one of the... I hesitate to call it a selling point, but one of the reasons... I certainly got interested in it to begin with is this incredible sort of rogues gallery of characters that it involves. And and and, and you, you do a good job introducing some of them to us. And and these you couldn't write these characters. These these characters could not exist in fiction. No no one could come up with Chuck Blazer. No one could really write Jack Warner. I mean some of the and, and these are and I think that's one of the things I want to impress upon the listeners is how funny a lot of this is because you hear uh, FIFA wrongdoing and you hear the word committee a lot and it's possibly the most boring word in the English language and just immediately all the shutters going down in your head. But th there's some just hilarious characters you kind of run into who are so much larger than life. I mean, that, that phrase doesn't even feel sufficient. Yeah, I mean, you know, if anyone has kind of started to zone out about me talking about research and committee and political theory, just know that Chuck Blazer had an apartment in Trump Tower for his cats, exclusively for his cats. 
let's reset there and take nothing else away than this man got so wealthy of football that he had a cat apartment and that and that like that for us as documentary makers is the stuff of dreams because it's real it happened it's it's humorous it's it's jaw-dropping it's kind of gross as well and i you know when i talk about the research part of the reason we did our research is because the big thing in the documentary world is access right mm. actually getting the people who who were there who were in the room getting them to talk to us and sit down and do interviews and part of the reason we were so hot on our research is because we knew basically they wouldn't trust us to tell their story unless we did our homework. So when we approached the Blatters and the Valks and the Teixeiras of this world and Bin Hammam, they knew that they weren't talking to chances or amateurs, that we were really serious, that we'd studied and that they felt they could trust us with their stories. And that was a really big deal for us, that we were going to do it justice as a, as a story. And, and this is certainly a feeling I came away with. You say that obviously it's it's meant for a uh, wide audience, but you also would like it to be enjoyed and respected by by nerds like myself. I was just baffled by the array of people you got to sit down and talk to. You. Uh, how, how did you get? I mean, pretty much everyone who's still alive who's interested in this, except there's a few people who obviously are not. But some of the people you thought they would definitely not talk to a project like this, you, you get them to turn up. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to people sitting down and doing interviews, I I maintain I think it only reflects well on people to actually sit down and do it. I have the mm. utmost respect for even people who um, have negative sentiments out there in the popular imagination, let's put it that way. You know, if you like, let's take someone like Ricardo Teixeira. Ricardo Teixeira has an outstanding arrest warrant um, in the US. If he were to get on a plane and leave Brazil, which doesn't have an extradition treaty with the US, if he landed in Miami on holiday, he'd be in handcuffs, right? So this is a guy who mm. um, has a lot at stake and he sat for an interview with us. And I think for them, why did they do that? Because they feel that they've been unfairly maligned. Mm. They feel that they've been a victim of a witch hunt that the Americans are out to get them and so on. And I think, you know, as far as Teixeira is concerned, to take, take one example, right, he, he sees himself as a guy who delivered a World Cup to Brazil. You know, mm. his job as the head of a football association is to make a good football team. His country wins the World Cup, wins the right to host a World Cup. As far as he's concerned, he's done a brilliant job and he's not getting the credit he's due and he is you know basically on an interpol red notice so he looks at, at our camera and goes well this is a chance to get my name out there and show my face and i think conversely you know it's like i think any documentary maker would say if you get a hundred people to sit but you 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 miss out on one it's the one that keeps you up at night mm. so if i look at the big names that chose not to sit for the documentary michelle platini who's been cleared of of his charges I still can't figure out to this day why he wouldn't. I think people who watch it would look at that and go, what does he have to hide? And, you mm. know, for someone who's been cleared in a court of law, I just think it's quite a quite a strange look. I, I still to this day don't know why. Jack Warner is someone who we had conversations with who invited me to meet him um, in Trinidad and speak with me and, and basically stood me up. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, he, I mean, I've, he asked me to come unarmed to a meeting, which you know I don't go anywhere without my AK. But he specified unarmed. He specified unarmed. Um, yeah, I, your listeners can't see me, but I'm not. I don't look like the kind of man who's usually no, tooled I'm, up. I wouldn't say so. No. Um, <laughs> Even on the, the mean streets of East London. In, you know, in yeah. the mean streets of East London, yeah. 
um and and he in the end kind of stood me up and and didn't show and you know it it's I think for people like Platini and Warner in the documentary that they've been so in the public eye for so many years that actually we kind of get a sense of who they are. I think the, the viewers yeah. get a sense of who they are. I don't think necessarily um, it would have been nice to put some of these questions to them. But, I, I, you know, if I look at people like like Blatter is, is the one that I often get asked about. Like, why would Blatter choose to sit? Well... <laughs> why why do you think well that was i was going to get to him because i first of all i think you guys do an amazing job at not over focusing on him and not making him like because so much of coverage of fifa over the years was set blatter is this like kim jong-un of football who's just a crazy man who's on top of everything and if you could just get rid of him everything would be fine and of course nothing could be further from the truth well you know him being slightly kooky is maybe one thing but you know you won't fix everything point is you get a real sense in the documentary of him feeling that his legacy has been misrepresented and, and that he believes he did good things for the sport. And, you know, as loath as I am to say it, I mean, the thing he gets ousted for in the end is, is kind of minor in, 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 in FIFA world. And, and again, there's something you, you're pretty clear on. Yeah, I mean, you know, people sometimes ask me, um, and certainly asked me before the documentary was out, it's like, how did you get Blatter if he's in jail? And it's like, Seth Blatter's not in jail. He's not in court. He's never been arrested. He's never really been accused of a crime. In a, you know, he's under. I think he's currently under investigation by the Swiss Attorney General. But um, you know, sure, who isn't? Yeah, I, I probably am at this point. But um, I, I, yeah, I mean, w but I guess that the thing with Blatter, with Teixeira, with Bin Hammam, with all of these guys is ultimately this is a documentary about politicians, and politicians get to where they are because they're good at talking and spinning mm. and telling their own narrative in a way that they feel is compelling. So Seth Blatter looks at a camera the same way that a carpenter would look at a hammer, right? This is my tool. This is what I have used to build my career. So when we turn up and we say, listen, this is a documentary we're doing, we'd like you to sit for an interview, um, it really is not much of a stretch for him to go, fantastic, this is what I do. This is what I've done for my entire professional life is I answer questions for the media and I do so to improve my my standings in this world. Um, it's interesting what you say about about us not focusing too much on bladder because again, I, I come back to the idea that, you know, I don't want viewers to take away from it that Set Blatter was the beginning and the end of FIFA's problems. The FIFA system and the way that that has been set up, I hope that people realize our feeling is it incentivizes, it induces people towards malpractice because mm -hmm because of the voting system, because of the way that the money sloshes around in it. And because basically football is this incredible, unique thing in our world where it's full of money, we love it, and we kind of don't care how it gets to us as long as it arrives on our TV screens. And, and this is where, I guess, reporting on this, doing a documentary on this, is such an interesting challenge because you have to approach it similar to the way one would approach reporting on politics in a lot of ways because it's a whole political system but with national politics international politics there's always a public interest angle whereas here they can all just kind of tell you to f off if they want to like they don't need to talk to them there is no actual oversight here there's no mechanism to hold any of them to account so you have to basically sweet talk them i guess in a way you guys must have been very successful at yeah i mean so we spent so much time figuring out how um how to approach people in order to ask them to speak and i think the thing that like you know the thing that i always want to emphasize to people is we're not um 
we're not sweet talkers we're not salespeople. you know the idea isn't to like make someone sit down because um you know because we want them to and they don't want to we always feel like the best interviews are done openly and willingly there were plenty of people i mean hundreds of people who we approached for this who didn't want to talk um i generally found as a rule of thumb it was that it was people who were scared people who were in the middle not in the top mm. um people who had a lot to lose again a lot of the these people have since been banned from football or have faced some sort of disciplinary thing so they have less to lose so why not go on tv and talk about it but you know it was always really important to us that people we didn't push people and we didn't make people talk if they didn't want to mm. didn't genuinely feel comfortable because what's the point of interviewing someone who doesn't want to be there mm. um i suppose the surprise for us is often how much people did want to talk and did want to tell their side of the story and did feel really um poorly treated by the by the world's press um i'm not saying i agree with that point of view by <laughs> no, the way no but if it, if it gets them talking it, the end result is, is very enlightening um when you took your uh, crash course in fifa and you sort of jumped into the pool and to, to learn more about this world what were the things that kind of surprised and shocked you the most so i think that the first thing and we look at this in episode one is i had not heard the name horse dazzler mm ever as a football fan i sort of vaguely knew that adi dastard for someone dazzler but i think the, the football world can be split into people who have never heard of horse dazzler and people who still think he's the most important influential person all these years after his death so for those who viewers who haven't seen it or saw it a while ago or just want to refresh her horse dazzler was the son of the adidas founder the sort of the heir to the adidas throne um he then did eventually take over adidas and he was the man who um, essentially bankrolled FIFA in the early days under the president, Joao Havelange, and is seen as by many as the father of sports marketing. The first person who went, hang on a minute, there's huge value in putting the Adidas logo and Adidas name on footballs, football boots, um, essentially paying FIFA for the privilege to do this and making sure that the Adidas name was out there. But people would also sort of see him as the as the godfather of corruption in football and, and arguably sport as well. He had a big relationship with the IOC. That he was the person who said to football administrators um, and Havelange in particular, if you accept my company's bid for sponsorship, I'll put some money in your pocket under the table. And that allowed ISL, which is a now defunct company, to buy rights for tournaments at below market value. So he is someone who, I, I, he is the catalyst. He fires a starting pistol on money and sport and, and grubby money and sport. And his name is, is hallowed today. It's mm. such an important person to discover. And there's some excellent books written about it. So I think he was someone that, that really surprised me. I think the second thing that really surprised me, and you sort of touched on it, Lars, is like basically FIFA operates more or less outside of the rule of law. Mm. FIFA is based in Switzerland and, you know, they say that's because it's a nice central place to be in. But <laughs> let, let's face it, companies put their headquarters in Switzerland for for banking reasons. But, you know, FIFA is really unaccountable. There are very few bodies that can hold FIFA to account and say, don't do this, you should do this, you should do that. And they like it that way. <laughs> they really like it that way. And... One of the reasons I think, and this gets into the later part of the, the series, um, one of the reasons that it had to fall to the FBI um, and the IRS to 
um, launch of wave of arrests on FIFA was basically because the US is the only country in the world which really doesn't care about football in a political level. Mm. So many countries around the world are, why would they take out, why would they take down, why would they limit or restrain the national passion? Um, so I think, the, 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 yeah, that was the second thing that really shocked me is just how FIFA operates in this kind of bubble. Let me give you one last example because this blew my mind. There was one building in the world that wasn't an embassy that had full diplomatic immunity, right? Full diplomatic immunity. This was the headquarters of Comnibol in Paraguay. Wow. So the headquarters of Comnibol in Paraguay, and this wasn't like hidden when they decided this, when the, Par the Paraguayan, um, the head of Comnibol was Paraguayan, this guy called Dr. Nicolas Leos, and he, he, he said to Comnibol, you should put the headquarters in Paraguay. I can get you diplomatic immunity. When they had diplomatic immunity passed through the Paraguayan parliament, it wasn't like under the table. They had a big ceremony. They put it on a plaque outside the building. And so in theory, like if Dr. Lales wanted to kill someone in that building, he could have done that. <laughs> and it's no coincidence that a lot of money was allegedly passed through the, that building with, with very few consequences because it had full on diplomatic immunity. Now, here's the thing. Here's the kicker, right? Just again... This is the Trump Tower cats. Take nothing away from this. That was revoked after the 2015 arrest, right? Mm. Because everyone looked at that and went, oof, this is a bad look. <laughs> Guess what the only building in the world today is with diplomatic immunity that's not an embassy? Is it what? It's the CAF headquarters in Cairo. Oh. It's a CAF, so that's the African Confederation. By the way, and, and your sharp-eyed viewers will notice this, there is one person... From the who voted on the 2018 and 2022 World Cups, who is still in FIFA today, sits on the FIFA Council. One person who who managed to see all of that stormy sea through and is and is still there today. There's three guesses where where he is from, what he his hometown is. Is, is it Mr. Aburida of mi Cairo? It is Mr. Aburida of Cairo. Isn't yeah. that a funny coincidence? The only diplomatic immunity building in the entire world yeah. after FIFA decided it was a terrible idea to do that was reinstated in the hometown of the only guy who knows exactly what happened in the 2018-2022 bidding and also up until recently had a joint bid with the Saudi Arabian FA. Do you think he mostly sleeps under his desk like George Costanza? <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not leaving this building. I'm staying in here. No, no one can make me leave. I, yeah, I, I, I think he sleeps well at night on a <laughs> very, very high Egyptian cotton thread count sheet. That's what I think. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. And... I mentioned the Rogues Gallery, and it, I had a brainwave actually rewatching um, the first episode ahead of coming here, actually, earlier today. There is a part in episode one where they're speaking about how, towards the end of Mr. Havelanche's era, he was almost ceremonial in his role as president, and it was just kind of Seth Blatter ticking away, just making things happen in, in, in the background. It just struck me then that that is actually so similar to at least what my perception of the latter years of the Blatter era was like, when he sort of between sort of 2011 and 2015, when Blatter started talking about the peace price and all this sort of crazy things, he seemed to almost abdicate the day-to-day -day stuff, but leave that to some of the characters we've always already mentioned. He let this unbelievable rogues gallery of people just kind of go about doing their business while he was... Uh, implausibly chasing a peace prize on top of it. It's kind of odd how history repeated itself there.
Yeah, and, and you know, forgive me, I'm going to plug another one of my company's documentaries. We just made a documentary about a Ugandan politician called Bobby Wine. Mm. Bobby Wine is the leader of the Ugandan opposition. He's a, he's a musician, sort of, it's, you know, it's called, the, it's called the ghetto president because he's like the president of the people. Anyway, made a film about him, and he's trying to take down the dictator in Uganda. And when he was asked, Bobby, what would you do in your first 100 days of office? He answered, I'd spend them making sure that I couldn't stay on longer than two terms, mm. making sure I would get into power and make sure I'd leave power. And they said, why? He said, because power does strange things to your head mm. and sycophants can ruin your mind. And I think that's what happens in FIFA is basically being FIFA president is the best job in the world. You get flown around. Um, often on a private jet to whatever country you want to go to, you land there like royalty. Except unlike royalty, you don't have to discuss, oh, we're going to go to war or we've got a trade deal. It's just you land there and you get welcomed and you get serenaded and then you go watch a football game. And then, oh, you're off to another football tournament. And then where's the under-17 World Cup being held? Oh, it's in, um, you know, the, the Argentina. And then you're in Argentina for a few weeks. It is the best job in the world. And you are surrounded by people who want to work at FIFA because they love football and they'll do whatever it takes to work there. So, yeah, I think if, if that means you go, right, I, I delegate to you all of the hard stuff, all the boring stuff, all the referees committees and the technical committees, and I'm just going to be a ceremonial figurehead. It is literally the best job in the entire world. And it's very easy. Um, it's almost impossible not to be surrounded by sycophants who will take all of that stuff off your plate. Why do the sycophants do that? Because they get the, the joy of coming along with you in the retinue. They don't get the president's box, but they get the box next door. Yeah, and then almost as the president, you almost don't have to be corrupt yourself because that's, that's just a waste of... I mean, why would you take that risk? I mean, you're getting well paid, you're living a good life. But you might, if you hypothetically had some lieutenants who had a lot of controls, a lot of votes in various parts of the world, and they say, hey... Boss, I'll, I'll make sure you get the votes you need to stay on next election. Just let me get on with mine and don't ask too many questions. That's kind of how that goes. Completely. One of the misconceptions about Blatter, I think, in the popular imagination that he was avaricious and greedy and just stuffed his pockets full of cash. And having looked into it, I, I don't think that's the case, to be honest. I think the thing with Blatter is he amassed one thing in FIFA. It wasn't money, it was power. He loved power he loved being in charge he loved knowing everything and everyone and in order to amass that power he was very good at figuring out what motivated the people around him so if jack warner was motivated by money well gee i'm gonna let jack warner amass money and um at the risk of getting your podcast taken off air i will stop <laughs> at what motivated some other people um, and how they were allowed yep. to 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 get on with that but the point being I think as as FIFA president, you almost rise above the grubbiness of the need to fill your pockets. W what good is money if you have everything you need? What what becomes your day to day and your waking? Um, the thing that keeps you up from from morning till night is how do I stay in power? Mm. Once you have that power, how do I stay in power? And if you look at Gianni Infantino now, I I believe that's the that's what's keeping him up as well. It's very interesting your point as relates to Infantino because that that's I've seen that that was a criticism I saw of the series when it came up. I came out. There were some people who felt that it tended towards having too much of a happy ending. That there was too much of a sense that now that Blatter is gone, things will be better. But actually, having rewatched uh, the first and the last episode earlier today, 
I, I don't actually... Well, I, I, <laughs> you can answer that criticism yourself if you want, but actually David Cotton has a very powerful little monologue about how it's a different kind of evil now, in, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I would say a couple of things. I would say in the first instance, if it were up to me, we would be making a whole series of films about what's happened since then. Mm. Our, our our ambition was always to kind of take it up to the arrest in 2015 and leave it there. And I, I don't think it would have been right or properly done to just tack something on about Gianni Infantino. But, I, you know, in a perfect world, we'd be we'd be doing that now because I think it is important. But it, it, it's a different story, right? Mm. It's like saying I'm going to do a documentary about Tony Blair and then being criticized for not taking on David Cameron. It's, mm. You know, in my in my mind, they, they live in two different worlds. Um, I, I would also say, and I do, I, you know, I, I can absolutely see that point of view, but I would also say in terms of documentary making, what made our life a lot easier was there was a massive FBI raid done in 2015, which proved and evidence is out there to show all the wrongdoings of the Blatter administration and people in, during uh, Blatter's time. Mm. Now, it's not to say that everything happening under Gianni Infantino is perfect. I'm just saying that from a legal documentary making standpoint, there is a lot less out there to work with. Yeah. Um, and I, and the final thing I'd say is it's still, it's still being written. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think our, you know, it's, it, I mean, we got, we got nominated for a, for an Emmy for investigative journalism. And I'm very glad that we got that, but I, I actually think in, in many ways, what we, you know, investigative is, is only part of it. What we did is, is collate and put together a mosaic mm. of all the other things that people have investigated over the years. Mm. Um, and there was stuff that we found out that was new, but actually a lot of it was about going, just so you know, the viewers at home, here's the story as it unfolded. Mm. And it was all under your noses at the time, Yeah, right? That for me was the shocking thing as a football fan going, this all happened. This was all in the news. This was in the papers. I just turned a blind eye to it. Mm. Um and I think the same thing is happening with Infantino now. So look, if there's FIFA Uncovered 2 in five years' time that properly looks at what's happened over the next little while, um, I think that would be I'd be interesting. But l- last thing I'd say, Lars, just so, so people know what David Conn said at the end, yeah. um, just to paraphrase that, because I think it is important, because I, don't, I personally don't think we go easy on him. Um, I think the point that's made is the, the Blatter FIFA years can be characterized as mismanaging money and allowing the money of football to go into pockets of shady individuals either by turning a blind eye or by incompetence or willful ignorance or so on. i think the black i think the infantino fifa years will be viewed in retrospect as the years where global politics overtook fifa and this isn't about oh did a tv rights deal get skimmed this is about did the soul of football get sold to the highest bidder um in a totally amoral and immoral way and that is that is for my mind that's how the series ends that's what mm. i want people to take away and the last thing we see is the sunset over doha as you know these buildings go up they've been built by migrant workers who you know have died and been injured and been um yeah so um i i understand why people say we went easy. I personally don't think we did. And, you know, mm. if anyone else wants to make season two and wants to, <laughs> wants to fund that, well, I'm listening. Well, there's, there's, there's some stuff to work on that. And I think really with Infantino, one of the things that stands out is exactly what you talked about, about how the power corrupts. Because certainly when he came onto the scene, I think he was seen as a 
slightly dull sort of functionary type of man, mostly known for having very long Champions League draws. Uh, and and I mean, people, I'm sure he'll be fine. You know, he seems less crazy than Blatter. That's good. But then if you sort of see some of his statements now when he gets on the podium, he seems like... <laughs> He, he, just based entirely on the things that are in the public domain that we can talk about, he seems to have just completely departed the realm of, of, of other people in terms of how his brain works. Here's the thing. Here's what I love about that point, because I agree with you. I agree with you. I I, I, I remember the I am, I feel gay, I yeah. feel disabled, I feel a migrant worker speech. And I remember laughing at it. Like yeah. It was a risible thing to say. But here's the thing that I want people to take away is Gianni Infantino doesn't care if snide smug journalists in northern europe think he's a bit silly because you and i i'm counting on us in this are not his target market his target market are the voters in the rest of the world who actually really like a lot of his messaging mm. they really like that messaging that you know base they, they enjoyed his fence sitting on gay rights for example people in conservative countries around the world really enjoyed his messaging which was basically i'm not going to let a small handful of states in northern europe and um decide what is and isn't moral i'm going to let the qataris do that and football associations around the world actually thought that that was a great point him saying i feel african actually you know I, I'm born in South Africa. I, I found that a, a risible statement, but I think a lot of that, it really was reminiscent of what Blatter would say. Blatter would say, I'm an African. I've got an African heart, all of this stuff. And basically what he's saying to those football associations is, I'm your guy, vote for me. Yeah, sure, I look Swiss and sure my name is Gianni Infantino, but basically I feel like you feel, so vote for me. And by the way, the only other opposition candidates are the kind of smug, sneery Northern Europeans who have always looked down on you and your people. And so I I, I think Gianni Infantino is is more is less charismatic than Blatter. I mean Blatter is honestly so charismatic and a brilliant politician. But I I think he he has managed to fit into the Blatter costume just enough to stay in power. And he seems we're getting slightly off piece here. We're not gonna talk about Infantino too much, but he seems almost more you know, he seems more organized in his... I mean, there was a sort of... Yes, Blatter allowed the sort of rogue gallery to thrive, but he was just kind of getting on with it. And, and like you said, some deals got skimmed and some money disappeared out of the game in a way that was problematic. But the sort of the sort of naked courting of uh, of money from dubious sources and, uh, and riding the waves of geopolitics in a hugely problematic way... It seems almost more organized and more problematic in my in my mind. I, I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is the bigger the sport grows, the more the more kind of outgoing there are, right? The more you have ingoing, it's almost a rule of life. The more money you have coming in, the more money you tend to have coming out. So FIFA's financial issues are, are bigger than ever before. They've got a huge global game to support. And they need money. And, and they like money. They're used to money. <laughs> That's the thing is you, you, you get being in Zurich and being around FIFA sort of events is just how much they've gotten used to to money. I mean, I, I, I went around the, the stadiums in Doha and looked at where the FIFA delegations would be sat to watch the games. And I mean, it's, it's just, it was, I, I ran out of Vs, V, 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 I, P. <laughs> and the, they they i think they have built a 
a built a, a gold cage around FIFA that needs to be maintained. So yeah, he is nakedly, nakedly courting um, money from from Saudi, from from UAE, from uh, private equity capital in the US, um, because I think he he needs that to maintain the lifestyle that FIFA has become accustomed to. And I think I you know I'm trying to be impartial here, but and I think he sees it as his his sort of duty to do that his duty as a football administrator if we take all emotion out of it and all morals out of it is to leave fifa with as much money in its coffers as possible and as far as he's concerned saudi arabia is no better or worse money than burundian money or american money or swedish money it's it, money is money yeah which seems to be a concern to me because you, you like the people in charge of fifa to actually in in theory, FIFA should be like the only organization that doesn't actually have to care about money. Like all the clubs will always try to attract more money to themselves. They can buy more players, and the players want bigger contracts, and the fans want better players for their clubs. And the FIFA, in theory, should be able to be outside of that and just kind of sit float above it and say, "Okay, we're trying to manage the growth of this game in the most equitable and 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 straightforward and and, and sustainable way." But that that thinking doesn't seem to enter into it at all. And, and I think this is where it's about who you are surrounded by on a daily basis, right? I feel like FIFA and football is surrounded by so much capital, so many money people, so many business people, they've begun to think that way. So, okay, I talked about the FIFA video game, right? FIFA have gone, aha, we think we can get better value out of the video game and and we'll do it ourselves. And no one stopped to go and hang on, why do you need a video game? Like, why, why do you need that? FIFA TV, FIFA have got a new TV streaming service. Mm. Why? Why, <laughs> why do you need that? Like, I think the, the initial job of FIFA to basically administer the games, make sure country A turned up to country B to play country C, to make sure that little boys and girls have access to balls and cones. I think they find that to be small fry and pathetic. And, that, and I think they've been, you know, what you need, if you look at who's in the VIP, or sorry, VVVIP boxes in Qatar, you know, it's Elon Musk and Gianni Infantino. And they're, they're not going to be talking about, did little Bobby have his football practice? They're going to be talking about, I don't know, football NFTs. And I think basically to kind of put a ribbon on this point, put a bow on it and, and sum it up. One of the worries I have with Gianni Infantino is he doesn't want to be a football administrator. He wants to be a world leader slash business person slash thought leader slash whatever, that they feel that they're above their core duties, which to my mind are letting kids and adults and everyone play football. It's not that hard. Yeah, because um, when I sort of dipped my toes a little bit into this world, 10 almost, say almost 15 years ago now, someone explained this to me because I, I came from the same place you did as I had it's the FIFA. They're probably bad, but I don't know how it all works. And someone sort of explained to me that actually FIFA then... FIFA are, or at least in theory, should be much less than you think. I mean, people think of FIFA as this sort of world government of football, which they're kind of not. If you look at their core activities, they arrange the World Cup, and then they use the money for that to arrange some other things that hopefully will be good for the game. And that's kind of it. That's like the, 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 Those are the main activities of this organization. And 10 years later, it seems like Infantino certainly is very keen on expanding that remit and adding all kinds of weird stuff and, and turning them into a kind of a world government of football that an organization like that probably shouldn't be, certainly due to the lack of oversight and all this sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, I think Havelange started it. Blatter, his, you know, it's well documented. We talked about it, that he wanted to win a Nobel Peace Prize. But I think Blatter sort of saw that as the 
as a as a nice add-on, a, a crown, a cherry on the top after many years of, of having this wonderful job. I think Infantino goes into the FIFA presidency and sees it as this kind of almost like a, the head of a parallel UN. Mm-hmm. And it's it's worrying to me. I mean, I, look, I speak for myself. I'm I'm curious if you had the same. FIFA, I play football every week, twice a week. I'm rubbish, by the way. FIFA haven't helped me get any better. I've never been on a FIFA course. I've never had a FIFA course. If I look at how the vast majority of people learn football, it's it's balls made out of rags and streets. It's, you know, it's your local five-a-side pitch. It's renting school facilities after hours. Like, I have never, you know, FIFA talk about all the amazing work they do, all the workshops they do. I've never seen it. Really, truly. Well, this is where I'm at a disadvantage coming from a, a very wealthy country. Like, I grew up in Norway. Like, the, the Norway does not need FIFA money to build pitches. Like, we can build our own pitches. Thank you very much. But I think the theory that appeals to me, actually, uh, being a football idealist, is that we can have an organization like FIFA who, you know, puts on the world championship and everyone enjoys that and people pay a lot of money to be able to broadcast it. And then we can take some of that money to build pitches and have programs in place and subsidize uh, youth international tournaments and make sure these kind of things happen. I think that is a really good idea. And I'm sure there are countries where there's been tangible good uh, that's come out of this. But my impression certainly is that the oversight process has been so bad and so negligent either through incompetence or more likely through design, that a lot of the funds that should have gone to building football pitches have, have gone to very different things. We we talk about this in the documentary. Um, you know, we've got a, a bit that I find just really funny of a, a, in Kenya, a football center that was meant to be built. And then we've got, you know, chickens pecking around it. And frankly, we could have, we could have chosen a whole bunch of countries where administrator X says, we're going to build a football pitch. Lo and behold, it's never built journalist goes there there's nothing there and administrator x has a sure does have a shiny new car and there and you know to be fair there are examples where it works really well i mean um iceland don't get to the 2018 world cup without massive investment in underground football pitches and um covered football pitches for the winter and you know before anyone says oh you're being very you know sort of eurocentric and uh, oh it's always europe good africa bad there are plenty of examples in europe of the money not going where it's meant to and take somewhere like cape verde which famously d- did has massively outperformed its size because that football association actually did invest the money well um what's really interesting today i think is it was sort of acknowledged that basically FIFA was giving too much money to associations without enough oversight. And a lot of those associations were going, okay, here's our pot of money. What should I do first? Well, well I should probably build a really good headquarters first, right? <laughs> so I'm with you. I'm, I have no issue with like pitches getting built, but so many places you go around the world and the association headquarters are sort of enormous and luxurious. And it's like, okay, all right, well then, okay, fine. Maybe you trickle down and 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 some pitches get built. The thing about the FIFA system is that every country gets the same amount. So Norway, a rich country, will get the same as Sao Tome and Principe, will get the same amount as Burma and so on. And you get these really insane situations like today, today, Montserrat, which is a small island in the Caribbean, 10% of its GDP is FIFA money, (laughs) right? So you go from a point where it's like the conversation in Montserrat about FIFA money is a matter of national importance. It's 10% of their GDP. So... And Infantino has only raised the amount of money going to associations. And again, people might say, well, more money, that's good. More's gonna, more pitches are going to get built. But if you're in a situation where, if you're the, let's say you're the football association head of Montserrat, 
your vote for FIFA president is a vote for 10% of your country's GDP. And as we talk about in the documentary, that means that wealthy countries like Norway, it's not going to move the needle. So they're not really invested. But small countries, smaller countries, that money is a huge deal. And they are more than likely going to be in favor of whoever keeps that money flowing. And all a FIFA president needs to do in order to win elections and stay in power indefinitely it's just say the money tap is on and it will continue to be on and that's not really great for a functioning democracy yeah whereas the candidate who says there'll be more oversight and we will ask for receipts and you have to show us what you did with the money might get fewer votes that's what i'm saying just maybe just (laughs) Just maybe maybe. the turkeys might vote for christmas yeah so that is the problem with my sort of very kumbaya vision of what fifa can and and should be is that you're asking, you, you are very much asking the, the turkeys to vote for Christmas here. You're, I mean, they're not going to certainly decide to have more oversight over themselves. They, they might do things that makes it look like they have, but realistically, can't, you can't really trust people to act that way. And this is, I mean, I, people might have listened to the last 15 minutes and gone, oh, this is all bleak and depressing and, and Sorry, I have, that effect, I have that effect on people. Yeah, yeah, and... and uh, you know, a little peek behind the curtain. Uh, we didn't have any coffee before we recorded, so it's all, it's all getting a bit low. Energy. But here's the thing. Here's, here's the takeaway. is Football only has all of this money. FIFA only has all of this power because of us, because of the people listening to the podcast, because we uh, watch football and that watching of football translates into dollars and cents. And football fans often do not realize the power they have. And if you're going, well, that's very sort of idealistic. Whatever, and just, you know turn on the European Super League. No way, you can't because football fans got together and pulled the plug on that really quick. I think the thing that football fans need to realise if they don't like the sound of this, if they don't like the sound of what FIFA are doing, if they don't like the sound of the Saudi League or if they don't like the sound of the Premier League for that matter, let's not, you know, let's not pick side. Vote with your eyes, vote with your wallet. Don't watch, you know, pull the plug, complain, do all of those things. Football fans are the are the rocket fuel in FIFA's engine. Mm. No fuel is no money. Well, how about that? I, I love that chat with Miles. Um, editing it, I sort of, yeah, that, that was interesting. There's more as well. There is a part two coming. You know, chatting with him, I was aware that this is going long. Even for the Lars Resort, this is going very long. But it was just all kind of interesting and worth listening to. Um, And I didn't want to edit anything significant out. So you know what? It's International Week. We're going to use all of it. That was part one. Part two is coming next episode. Tune in for that. It'll be out pretty soon, I think. 